Amen. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and one of our ushers will gladly get one to you. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. And in my Bible, at least, this section is entitled, Treasures in Heaven. So, as James mentioned, that's pertinent for today. I did not know that we were going to be having these kind of um, announcements today. And um, even when Brian divvies out the teaching, Treasures wasn't really like something that I said I need to teach on because of my background or... um, anything like that. So just uh, that in itself is, to me, like providence from the Lord that he's in control and he knows what he's doing. Um, Let me pray and then we'll read the scripture. Our Father, you're good. You give to us good gifts. You're near and even now, as we read your word, um, you speak to us. Help us to see and hear in the way that you ought, in the way that we ought, and for me to speak in alignment with your will. Ask that what I would say that would be of you would stick and anything else would go by the wayside and um, that you'd be glorified in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'll read these seven verses or so. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, How great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Those are words straight from Jesus himself. Um, I'd like to start with actually reading a, um, a famous hymn, just to set the tone a little bit from Isaac Watts, written in 1707. That's pre-USA. It's a long time ago. But sometimes these just older hymns speak to us. When I Survey the Wondrous Cross is the title of it. And this is just the last stanza. Where the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And before we zoom in on these few verses, I always like to have some, I guess, perspective or even a relative context as to where we are in the grand narrative, as it's called in the Bible. And this is the year of biblical literacy for our church. We're reading through the scripture, and um, I'm just excited to read some of the more famous parts. Not that the Sermon on the Mount isn't some of the most famous, but just going from beginning to end of, of the Bible, looking at some parts in Genesis and Revelation to see where we're at now in Matthew 6, and then we'll look at Matthew, and then on down to the Sermon on the Mount. So kind of taking a 30,000-foot view on down. Um, Genesis chapter 1, verse 20, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. 
God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And then chapter 2, God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So even from the beginning, God the creator, we're the created, gave us um, a, a charge to be fruitful, to multiply, to work in the garden. That's pre-fall. Work, work is a good thing. Um, and then all the way at the end of the book, Revelation, the last two chapters, talking about heaven. Christ is talking about laying up treasures in heaven in our scripture. So let's look a little bit about what John, the revelator, the apostle, says here about heaven in chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. There shall neither be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life with no payment. And then we see in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes up to the sermon to give his people a way of living. Well, Moses did that in Exodus 2. Um, Exodus chapter 19, he did that as well. And just want to be reminded of what God did through Moses to his people in a similar way that, God, that Jesus does for us now. While Moses went up to God, the Lord God called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourself has, have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Obey my voice, keep my commandment. And of course, that's when we get the Ten Commandments, the first one being, you shall have no other gods before me. And then we come down into Matthew, and commentators say the key theme in Matthew is Jesus is king, because it starts with his lineage um, and genealogy in chapter 1 being of the lineage of King David and being born in the same city that King David was born, Bethlehem. And at the end, even, he says, all authority has been given to me at the end of Matthew, um, showing him, showing that he is, he is king. Um, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. And I think it's important to see what is happening right before the Sermon on the Mount. Because the Sermon on the Mount is famous. We get the Beatitudes. Um, there's a lot of um, sometimes difficult things to read because it seems like such a high call. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Um, it seems like, how could, how could he be expecting this, thing, this of us? But before he preaches this message, gives this discourse, right before it says, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease, every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, he healed them. And the great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain, and he sat down. His disciples came to him. So he's teaching and preaching, at least to disciples, probably more, 
people that are hearing, that are, that, have, that are watching him heal, and probably people that have been healed. So they're not necessarily going like we go maybe to church to just take notes. They're going to follow, to listen, to, um, to heed his words, to, um, to be with him. And I always like to read at the end of the sermon just to be reminded, what is he, what is he closing with? And he's closing with, ask me, ask me, come to me, and I will give to you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. And he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the people, they, they hear him speak, and they say, this is different. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them with one who had authority and not as their scribes. And again, I just want to remind us of the gentleness and the goodness of God because the Sermon on the Mount is sometimes difficult to read in what it demands of us. In chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, Jesus says, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now let's get into the, to the message, Sermon on the Mount. Um, I think I even have a map if we want to. Sometimes people like to see maps. He's, um, that's Israel right there, and he's in Galilee. Sermon on the Mount is what they think next to the Sea of Galilee. And, of course, further south is Jerusalem. Um, three, three points that I feel like I have to give, that God has given me to give to you from this message. It's the eyes, uh, the heart, and the treasure. The eyes that get blinded, the heart that follows, and the treasure that lasts. Uh, so first, the eyes. And I want to start with this section on the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? It seems like a disconnect a little bit. He's talking about treasures in heaven, and then he's talking about money, and you can't serve both. But in between, he starts talking about this lamp and these eyes and darkness. Why is he speaking on that? Well, many at that time would say that there was a connection between the lamp and the heart, or the spirit. And he's making a claim or um, drawing our attention to realize that um, our, heart, our heart can be blinded. Our heart can be in darkness. How great is that darkness? What's greater darkness than being blinded? And actually, some would say that it's a, a more helpful analogy to say that the eye is more like a window. I just put a picture of a window up just because I feel like it gives us a little bit of an idea of um, what... what um, what he's speaking to. But a window lets light in, as we know, it's obvious. And if you have blinds up in a window, you can't see, you can't see out. And if your eyes, he's saying here, are blocked, are, are um, unable to see clearly, they're darkened by what I think he's talking about here, greed versus um, generosity. If they're, dark, if they're darkened by the cares of this world, the money, then, then how great is that darkness? And sometimes I like to read the King James Version, just the old language to see what it says. And he actually, he actually uses here the word single versus evil. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. So what is he saying with single and evil? Single is actually not to be uh, compared with double, like single versus double, but it's actually single as in simple. If thine eye be simple, if it be whole, um, if it be um, nimble from just being bogged down from stuff, really, the, the additional things in our life that don't actually serve us, 
um, that we end up serving. Um, just incredible insight that I think points to even what we experience today with regard to money. Sometimes you'll hear someone um, say, how could they be so blinded by money? If you see something that's corrupt happening or injustice, um, we don't have to look far today in our system to, to hear these, these and, and see these news articles of just corruptness and injustice. And a lot of times people will say, well, it's because they, they're blinded by money. And of course, none of us sets out to be just a taker, take, take, take. We want to be people that give. But we see it time and time again, the college student that graduates college with the um, idealism and the idea to, to make a difference, yet a few years in their career, whether it's because of bonus or a promise of climbing up the ranks of promotion, they find themselves miserable in a position of, why, why do I work here? I don't want to do this for work. How did I get here? It doesn't have to be a college student. It could be any age, really. A business owner, someone who finds themselves cutting corners, um, making compromises, saying to themselves, this isn't technically illegal, and going forth in whatever it is they're doing in their work to um, make ends meet or to do something profitably. Um, it's the, it's the, the, the eye-opening blindness, greed, um, Tim Keller, one of my favorite pastors, he talks about how greed is the one sin that we just don't even know when we're walking in it. Versus adultery, for example, it'd be very hard to say, I didn't know that that person wasn't my wife while you're committing adultery. That's kind of obvious. <laughs> Stealing, you can't say, I didn't know that that wasn't mine, I, I stole it. But, but greed, how often do we come to ourselves or come to someone else and say, you're being greedy, you're being you're not using your money well. You're being blinded by money. That's just kind of a taboo thing. We don't, we don't do that very often. Um, and I think that's the claim that Jesus is saying here. If your light in your body, your lamp, isn't warm, isn't alive, you're walking in darkness, and you'll miss it. Um, that's the, the first part, eye-opening blindness. Um, I wanted to just quote, uh, often not quoted, band from church, Pink Floyd. Um, they have a, a song called Money, and I just thought that they tackled the way of this world, as Paul says, very pertinently, like, well. And maybe they were being satirical or making a joke themselves about how money is, but this was, you know, back in the 60s, 70s, English rock band. Um, they say, get a good job with good pay, and you're okay. If you get a good job, you're going to be fine. Money it's a gas, it's fuel, we need it to live. Grab the cash with both hands and make a stash. We're just here to get as much money as we can. The new car, the caviar, four-star daydream. Think I'll buy, my, buy me a football team. Um, and of course, none of these things are bad on their own. Good food, good places to stay, but, but um, we end up serving them instead of them serving us. Um, and that just becomes the way of the world. When everyone around us is doing the same thing, we end up going that direction as well. We become blind. The eyes let light in. Why? To see clearly what we're invited into. Okay, now the heart. The heart that follows. The heart that is a follower. And I get this from verse 21 in chapter 6. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The treasure goes first, and the heart is going to follow. It's not vice versa. Your, your, your heart doesn't um, direct the treasures. The treasures direct the heart. The heart is a desire factory, right? It makes desires, and that's why it's such a profound mystery and miracle 
why Christians become people that want to come to church, that want to read Bible, that want to sing, because Jesus changes our heart. And um, the treasures direct our heart, where we have our stuff. He's, he's basically saying, show me your bank accounts, show me your statements, and I'll show you what you care about. When I think we're so often prone to think, eventually I'll get there. I'll, I'll, I'll buy what I need now, I'll, I'll use my stuff how I think I do, and, but really I know I care for other things. You'll hear people say, like, I wish I had a, a, a bigger heart for missions, a bigger heart for the church, a bigger heart for um, serving people. Well, the money's got to be there first, as we see here. That's how I interpret it. The treasure has got to be there. You got to put your money where your mouth is, and then the heart will grow into that. <clears throat> I think of Exodus chapter 16, going back there again, where um, God's people are rescued from Egyptian enslavement, and they're in the wilderness, and they're complaining, and God says, fine, I'll rain down manna for you. And it's bread from heaven that he provides them. And he says, day by day, um, use this. Don't store up extra because I want you to have me in your heart, not rely on the manna day by day. And in chapter 6, verse 4, the Lord said to um, Moses, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in. Not a week's portion, not a month's portion, not a year's portion. And then, of course, in verse 20, we see they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning. And what happens to it? It bred worms. It stank. When we store up things in our heart that aren't what we're called to store up, Christ, it, it breeds worms. It stinks. It putrefies. It doesn't actually um, satisfy. It doesn't suffice. We have one true loyalty, as he says in Matthew chapter 6. You cannot serve God and money. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The heart's going to follow one or the other. Um, Tim Keller, again, he, he poses the question in terms of a litmus test on how do we know what we're treasuring? How do we know we have something that is taking top priority in our life? And he asks us to ask ourselves, what does money just fly out of our pockets for? What do we just find ourselves freely spending? That's an indicator that that is, that is where our, our priorities are. Um, or, or ask differently, um, when we're sitting down and, and not intentionally focused on something, where does our mind tend to drift? Where do we daydream? Is it things like Revelation 21 22 and eternity and, and uh, the bride coming one with Christ? Is it being able to give and help and, and pursue um, pursue what God has, has for us here in, in Scripture, or is it um, just the other things of life that we end up daydreaming about, that we end up um, having money fly out of our pockets? I know for me, money flies out of my pocket for pizza and books and courses and, and learning, because I find my part of it is there's an identity issue of, is my identity from being smart, or is it from Christ? And i got to recognize okay, does money also fly out of my pocket for giving to the needy, to the poor, to helping, to, um, to maybe self-denial a little bit? Um, and of course, this Jesus, as brilliant as he is, in the next sections, which is next week, he speaks to anxiety. 
because that's, a, that's just where we go naturally. If, if, if we're called to do all these things with our, our finances and give, then what if? What if we don't have enough? And, of course, in those famous verses, he says, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Uh, a way to apply it to our heart, asking ourselves, who owns it? Who actually owns our stuff? Who's, who's the true owner of what we have? Even taking a deep breath right now, who gave us that breath? And then how much is enough? That's, a, uh, I think, a wise way to start in terms of even trying to practically understand how do we give or store up treasure in heaven versus treasure on earth. How much is enough for us, for myself, if we have a family? How much is enough for our family? That way you start with the end in mind, and you know what's extra, what's margin. Um, just a couple points of application. The, uh, par- the, the parable of the, the shrewd manager, or the story of the shrewd manager, is another one that pertains directly to these words where he says, you cannot serve God in money. And I want to read it because it's in, of course, Jesus' way that he does it, unexpected. It's a surprising story. It's a, uh, a takeaway from a story that you just wouldn't expect when you read it. It's um, in um, Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 9. You can turn there if you want, but I'll read it to us. Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 9, and this is Jesus speaking. There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. He was wasting his manager's possessions. The manager, or, um, the master called the manager and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be the manager. So the manager says to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I... So that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. They'll still like me. So, summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he says, A hundred measures of oil. So the manager says to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Basically gives him half his, half his oil back. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. So the manager says to him, Take your bill and write eighty. And this is the surprising part. The master comes back and commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. There's that word again, light versus darkness. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you what is your own? And then no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. He's saying we're all just a bunch of managers. And if a shrewd manager knows how to good, give good gifts, how much more so should we who are of God give of what we don't even own to begin with, of our master's wealth to those um, who need it, to those who we can 
bring with us into eternity, eternal dwellings. Um, it's an incredible story. Um, so that's the, um, the money that blinds, uh, the eye that blinds by money, the heart that's a follower, and then lastly, the treasure, the treasure that lasts, eternal treasure. And I'll read it again in Matthew 6. Verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? Because that's where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But do lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Why? Because that's where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Christ is not making a claim on morality when it comes to giving here. He's making a claim on intelligence. It's just smarter to lay up treasure where it's not going to be stolen. It's going to be safe. It's going to be lasting. I think anybody would agree on that, whether you're secular or not, or sacred or, or holy or not. It's, uh, an investment is a smart investment, is one where you get your money back and then some. And he's saying here, the smart people are the ones that lay it up in heaven. And then a few more verses on eternal treasure, because I think that cannot be understated, just that there's eternal rewards in Christ um, that he gives us. Uh, Luke 12, 33, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. So what's one way to store up treasures in heaven eternally is sell your possessions and give to the needy, provide yourself money bags that do not grow old. In Hebrews 13.5, a word on, on contentment, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's Paul's famous words. I am content in all situations, whether whether rich or poor, whether hungry or full, uh, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. How do, you get, how do you get that way? And then these, these words have been used all the way back in Isaiah. Isaiah 51, 8. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool, but my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. They talk a lot about moths and, and wool and stuff because clothing was just so expensive. Usually they only had one cloak. Unlike today, we have lots of clothes. But back then, if you lost your clothes, your, your cloak, you had nothing. So um, they're speaking directly to what's important to them at that time. Maybe today it would be, I don't know, our home. If your home, uh, if your home gets taken over by termites, um, that's not where your salvation is. Your true home is in heaven with Christ. Um, just a few stories on generosity that I've experienced over the years here at Calvary. I remember we did a bake sale a few years ago for Hume Lake. As we do, we raise money for the kids and so they can hear, hear the word and be saved. A lot of kids get saved at Hume Lake. But someone just gave like $300 at a bake sale, like $300 bills in our, in our little Dixie cup. And the kids were just so stunned. It's like, why would someone do that? Um, I worked at a company and, and there was a guy there that would pull money out of his retirement account, just big chunks of money. And he did that in order to give to an organization that was a Christian organization that would give 
gospel as well as water, water wells. And people in the company would be like, why is he doing this? Does he not know that he's not going to be prepared for retirement or he's not old enough to spend all his money down? And I would talk to this guy, and he wasn't like head in the clouds, super optimistic, maybe like a sweet old man that you would think. He was actually pretty aware and practical, and he would just say, I, I know this isn't my money. I know this is smart. I know that by giving this to people that need water and, and the gospel, that's, that's a far better return. It was just incredible how he got like that. Um, people in this church that use spare bedrooms or parts of your home to house people for free at no cost, that happens all the time. Just amazing. Those that adopt, adopt children, what, a, what better picture of the gospel than to care for someone that could never pay you back? Um, those that care for children, childcare, even elderly people, just incredible generosity. Um, our own pastors that take my call at any time of day because I need help, whether it's anger or doubt, depression, just the ability for our pastors to bear our burden with us. It's not necessarily a word. Sometimes it's just saying, I take on your pain with you. Just so generous um, that the church, those that teach week in and week out, faithful, the youth group or college group, young professionals, children, uh, using the, uh, your time. Um, I don't know how many years ago it was, but when we were at the Hawthorne Church, we had a restaurant tour who brought his whole staff on an Easter service and created a, an amazing meal for free for the whole church. Who knows how much that cost him, but he just wanted to give it. What a blessing. Those that go to prisons and share with prisoners, like gospel, who really everyone else in society has kind of written off. So, so, um, so giving. Those that have businesses that work in the business world that just give a percentage of their profits to the local church, to ministry. Um, amazing generosity stories that I've experienced and seen firsthand over the past 10 years here that have just been so encouraging for me. Eternal rewards. Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Our inheritance is Jesus, the good master. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, and he prepares the works in advance that we should walk in them. Um, I wanted to find some verses that actually speak to how we store up treasures, because there's a lot of people that give commentary on, okay, is treasure maybe intangible, where you're becoming more and more like Christ, and you're, you're being sanctified daily, and your character is growing, you're, you're sharing the gospel, and, and building relationships. Is that eternal treasure? Probably, but there's also real stories where Jesus says in Matthew 19, 16 to 30, for example, the uh, rich young ruler story where the, the ruler comes to him and says, how do I be perfect? And he's like, I'm doing all the things you just said. And Jesus hits him with um, a charge that you can tell is where this man has his identity, his, his worship. Behold, a man came to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. So in no uncertain terms, he says selling to the poor, or selling and giving to the poor equals storing up treasures in heaven. And maybe for that rich young ruler, he needed to hear that at that time because that was what he was idolizing. And, and the amazing thing to me about that story is God, Christ, gives him the same invitation that he gives his apostles, his disciples. Drop your nets and follow me. And of course, if you read the rest of the story, the rich young ruler goes away 
downtrodden. We don't know if he ended up selling his stuff or not. And Christ says, with man it's impossible, with God it's possible. Um, I can make this happen. I can make this man right. Um, so he doesn't tell everyone to sell their stuff. And God doesn't say, you know, be poor because you're more holy. That's, that's a way to earn our salvation. We know it's, salvation is by grace alone, by faith alone, by Christ alone. Um, just like we can't earn our salvation by giving. But we know that we change. We become more and more like Christ as we spend time with him. And we see that he is a giver. The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn, an amazing book. Uh, his famous line, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Or that famous Jim Elliott verse, uh, word that he says, the missionary, he um, is no fool to give what he cannot keep. Uh, or he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep uh, to gain what he cannot lose. Um, and then finally, another last scripture on, on just this eternal treasure, and I entitled it, Christ is for our joy, because we read here just blatant 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy. God is for our joy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly lasting. And the real question is, is, is how, right? How does someone get to the point where they want to give? Because every religion, world system, ism has giving as a principle. Even as kindergartners, we learn sharing is caring. But what allows a Christian to be different? In the book of Acts, it says the Christians turned the world upside down. They stayed with the Romans that were... Um, diseased. They put themselves on the line. Why did they do that? Why would they allow themselves to be in harm's way for those that aren't even of their own family? Well, I think the hint is in Exodus when um, God gives Moses the commandments. He says, I want you to be my treasured possession. God says that to us. And we look at Jesus. He leaves his throne, his treasure, to come into our mud, our mire. He becomes a baby, born in a manger, in a trough. He becomes poor. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man is homeless. He loses all his friends when he's arrested. They abandon him. His cloak is taken. He's hanged naked on a cross. Uh, Isaiah 53, he was beaten beyond recognition. He had no beauty upon which we should desire him. We esteemed him not. Why? Why did he do all that? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says it on the cross. Three days later, he rises in in life, proving that he has dominion over death and sin. Why did he do all that? For the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. What was that joy? Of getting you and me back, of treasuring us. For our sake, he who knew no sin became sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. That's what changes us. A few, just six treasure applications just I'll go through them quickly, and the worship team can even prepare to come on up. Just a way to, to apply what we've heard. Number one, give with a warm hand. Why wait? Why wait till we're dead? Number two, 
Work was always a part of the master plan. It's good. God intended us to work, to earn, to save. There's plenty of, of verses in Scripture on, on wise saving and, and spending. Um, so it's not about the earning. It's about the hoarding. It's not about serving God. It's, it's, does money serve us, or are we serving money? Number three, giving is not just about morality. It's the smart thing to do. Laying up treasures in heaven, that's a signature guarantee from the blood of the Lamb. Number four, the heart is made healthy, literally, when we give. There's all kinds of scientific studies that people that give live longer because their heart, the actual organ, is made healthy. It just is better. God is telling us there's evidence. Number five, the only way to prove self-admittance of having enough is to give. And then lastly, we talk about tithe in the tenth. We know we're not under any law. We're under grace. There is no tenth uh, of anything that causes us to be right with God. We're already right with him by what Christ paid on our behalf, the beautiful substitution. However, if 10% seems like a lot of money to us, like an astronomical amount to give, then that's an indication we haven't seen the extreme generosity that Christ gave to us. And in closing, when I survey the wondrous cross, where the whole realm of nature mine, fat were a present far too small, love so amazing, so, demi- so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Father God, be with us now as we come to be with you in worship, in song, in prayer, in partaking of the cup and the bread. In Jesus' name. Amen.